Good morning, everyone. Well, I have the honor and privilege of welcoming our special guest speaker today, um, Jeffrey Seif. Uh, here's a little bit about him. He was born and raised in a traditional Jewish household. Uh, Jeff Seif surrendered his life to Christ and began the call of vocational ministry. He's a retired and distinguished university professor of Bible and Jewish studies from King's University and a retired Bible professor at Christ for the Nations, where Candy and I uh, went to school and we were in his class. Um, he taught Old Testament survey, and he's known to shoot the sleeping students with a super soaker. True stories, plural. He didn't ever shoot me because I liked, I liked his class. Uh, he holds two doctorate degrees and a master's, so when he's not around, we call him Dr. Dr. Seif. Uh, he's taken uh, studies from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago and holds a leadership and coaching certificate from Harvard University, Cambridge. He is presently pastoring a small messianic congregation in Arlington, and he was the project manager and vice president for the newly released Tree of Life version of the Bible. You can find this version of, of the Bible in your Bible app, the, the Bible app. Uh, just look for Tree of Life version. It is a, a messianic uh, version of the Bible. Um, he presently spends some of his time as a master certified police officer, part-time instructor at the police academy, and as many of you are aware, you can see him, Sergeant Seif, on the side of the road enforcing the city of Ovilla's traffic laws. It is with great pleasure that I introduce you to Dr. Jeffrey Seif. Thank you. It's a little weird, isn't it, having a cop up here, but hey. It's all good. I am super thrilled to be here. And I have been so looking forward to this. And I don't know exactly why. There, there's a number of reasons for it. Um, I've lived in Ovilla for about 15 years and have never had the opportunity to, to minister here uh, in, in the city. So that's kind of cool. Another thing is when I first visited here, I think this is such a cool church. This is a church where, I mean, it's a story where more than one plus one equals more than two. Two groups got together and something became bigger than both of them. Something new is born. Something's regenerated. And I'm going to want to talk about that some this morning. Another reason why I think it's cool is that when I walked through here, I saw Brad Vanderberg and the Vanderberg boys and Jan, of, Brad was a music minister in a, in a church that I pioneered years and years ago. And it's kind of cool to see, um, you know, Caleb kind of leading worship. Uh, that's cool. There's another woman, Desi, here with her kids. I baptized, the, I dedicated the kids years ago, pastoring another church. And even this morning, a woman came in and uh, who's visiting here for the first time. She's just looking uh, for uh, another church home. And Ruthia Jackson is a retired major out of the military. She lives in Glen Heights. She was a student of mine. I've had 20,000 students as a Bible college seminary professor. I don't remember all of them, but I remember her because she worked for me as an administrator in a church that I pastored. And she's just looking for a church and just so happened to come here this morning. Ruthia, let me tell you, son, um, you found a great place. This is a very, very, very cool church. It really is. You know, Barry and I uh, get here as much as uh, we can. I have an arrangement when I retired as a uh, university professor, as a seminary professor, 
Uh, Chief Wyndham, Brian Wyndham, who used to be a lieutenant in DeSoto, said, Jeffrey, why don't you come and, uh, and help me out here? Uh, we need a sergeant of patrol to, to oversee the patrol division. And uh, I, I was really thrilled to have the opportunity to do that. I'm 61 and a half, and I still got some spring in my step. You know, I want to do stuff. <laughs> And, and I love being a cop for whatever reason. I'm a graduate of the North Texas Regional Police Academy. And as Keith noted, and Keith and Candy as noted, were former students of mine. Uh, but I just, I just love policing. I love the culture. I love the ministry. And I love Ovilla. And here you are, this great, great miracle in, in Ovilla, Texas. It is such a cool church home. I love it. I super duper do. Barry and I travel about. We'd be here more. A couple weeks ago, we were in uh, ministering in Germany and then the Ukraine, and in a couple weeks, we'll be in, uh, in Africa. Uh, but uh, we just get here every chance we can. There's a few things I have in the back table I want to make you aware of, as Keith had noted. Uh, Baker Books, which is one of the major publishers of Bibles in the English language, just uh, published, it came out in January 2017, a new rendition of the Bible and I was pleased to be the vice president for it and the project manager of it. Uh, un a unique distinctive about Etz Chaim, we went and got the subsequent requisite degrees that you need in order to be involved in Bible translation. And what we wanted to do was restore the Jewishness of the Bible. That's been lost through time and circumstance. Jesus was a Jew, his name wasn't even Jesus, his name was Yeshua. His mother wasn't the Virgin Mary, she was Miriam. He wasn't born in Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem. Through time and circumstance, the Jesus story has been walking around in white Anglo-Saxon Protestant dress, but, and I'm, I'm not all about being negative to that, but we wanted to kind of uh, recapture the story uh, in its original essence. So all of the people that worked with me and under me on this were individuals of Jewish extract like myself who came to faith or individuals of non-Jewish extract who had a relationship with Jesus who went to a Jewish university to get a PhD in languages, whether it's Hebrew University, Jerusalem, or elsewhere. So it really is unique, and it really is taking the, book, uh, the world by storm. And so I have some of that. Is anybody interested in this? Right, let's give it to you. Someone wants to come up and get it. Whoever's first here can have it. There you go. Pays to sit in the front, hon. It's all used, girl. I got another one, too. Uh, a good friend of mine, Paul Wilbur, you might know him from his music, a contemporary musician. We did a book together. Uh, I realized that uh, the Book of Psalms really is a go-to book for people that find themselves sometimes amidst the rock and a hard place in life. And it's just sometimes hard to get up in the morning and you gotta get your head in the scriptures. And the Psalms is a great go-to place. Well, Baker Books in January of 2017 published uh, our devotional commentary on the Psalms, Shalom in the Psalms. Who wants it? Come on up here, por favor. You can have it. They're in the back, by the way. They're 15 bucks. A book on the Middle East, Making Our Peace with the Warriors of the Sand. I, I wrote this to look at what the Bible says positively about our estranged Arab cousins. Anybody interested in history? Okay, come on, it's yours. My wife... Oh, you'll give it to him, okay? Another one I wrote, uh, this started off as a paper I presented to a bunch of scholars, a publisher said, Jeffrey, let's put it in a book. It's all about the, not everyone's interested in history, I am. Uh, I'm interested in how the Jesus story began in Judea. It morphed up into the Levant, which would be modern Lebanon and Syria. And then across Asia Minor, the Anatolian Peninsula, modern Turkey, across um, 
the, uh, the Aegean Sea over to modern Greece, across the Adriatic, over to Italy, to Spain. And I'm interested in how the gospel expanded in the first two, three centuries, not only across southern Europa, but then North African, uh, Carthage, Cyrene, and Alexandria, Egypt. Anybody interested in church history? It's a little hard to read, but it's all yours. And last but not least, you're quite welcome. My wife, a scholar in her own right, Barry, some of you might have known my wife, Patty, who died of ovarian cancer. Um, and uh, it was Patty who first wanted to move to Ovilla. We live in Ovilla Oaks Drive and been here about 15 years. Uh, but Patty died. And uh, before Patty died, she told me, you need to marry Barry. And it was just a fascinating story. I didn't even know it. She, she left a video in the house. Because I worked in television for years, and the producer came. And she, she made a video welcoming the new wife into the family. She wanted me to remarry. And Barry and I, Barry's a Jewish believer like myself. She wrote a book, The Names of God. It's a devotional for all the different names of God, 360 of them in the Bible. Who wants, by the way? And this is available. I'm sorry, girls first. You're going to buy one anyways? Okay. Let me tell you what I want to do and, and how I want to do it. Uh, sitting here, and I've been here many times, and I'm not the kind of guy that just, I'll come to church if you'll give me an offering and give me an opportunity to preach. I'm, I'm happy, honestly, just to be here to soak it all in. I think this is a very, very, very cool church for a variety of reasons. And I was sitting in the sanctuary some time back, and I said, if I ever am invited to speak here, and I didn't assume that I would be, I want to talk to you about regeneration. I want to talk about stuff coming back to life. And I want to do that in part because even vertical is a regeneration, a Baptist church and a group and merging. And 30 here and 30 there. I mean, the sky's the limit. Uh, there's a story about regeneration, about something, something coming back to life. And in a world where so many churches are plateaued numerically or declining, I think a book needs to be written about vertical church. Uh, simply because uh, so much of it is declining and lethargic and slothful and turning in on of itself. I mean, there's a beautiful story here that's in play, and, and the final chapters haven't been written. And I just think it's a really cool place, and I'm, I'm glad to participate. So I, I said to myself, if I ever have the opportunity to speak here, I want to talk about regeneration. But I'm not interested in regeneration as it's played out in churches. I'm interested in, in our own lives we need to regenerate. We suffer insults in life. People become discouraged. There's despair, decay, disorientation. It's ubiquitous. People are depressed, repressed, suppressed, oppressed, the whole nine yards, and people are asking the question, can this gig come back to life? It's a reasonable question. It used to be when people preach, they preach about, you know, you get right with Jesus Christ, and then you can have life after you die. Well, listen, I believe in all that, but today people aren't asking as much whether there's life after death as whether there's life before death. <laughs> because there's so much roadkill on the highway of life in relationships, physically, emotionally, spiritually, interpersonally. People are all torn up in relations with other people intrapersonally. Never mind the dialogue and the nature of the relationship with other people. Intrapersonally, people are kind of at war and torn up with themselves, gassing themselves, starving themselves, and all the rest. That if you look at problems, the ubiquitous in culture. So I think to look at uh, regeneration, I, I think that's a good thing to do. One or two other things before I give you a little introductory clip, and then we'll get right into it. 
I wanted to do something a little unique. I'm not the kind of guy, I mean, I mean, I'm a retired seminary professor, been in ministry 30 plus years. You know, I've written one or two speeches, but I never give them twice. Uh, I don't like to think, well, yeah, I gave that speech over there, and by golly, they really got a lot of amens and a good offering and say, let me whip it out. I like the jokes and, and, and the story there. I just don't roll that way. I like to pull stuff. I don't like to go, I mean, stuff that I did back then, whether it was last week or last year, you know, I don't like to pull stuff out of the freezer. I like to make it fresh. You know, you just kind of wrestle with it. Uh, and so what I want to do is look at regeneration, but it's bookended by two things. Number one is I realize there's a lawn party here, and, uh, and I know that pastor is co- the lawn party is tonight, and I know that the pastor is coming back next week, Brian, and he's doing a series on beaches. So I wanted to challenge myself, and I wanted to look at, is there anything in the Bible that deals with regeneration at a lawn party by a beach? Okay? So that's what what I made myself work on. And the truth of the matter, there is. And uh, what I want to do is get into that with you. But I want to begin by priming the pump because, you know, I'm not a series guy here. I'm just giving a, you know, just giving a speech. I'm just a one-timer, you know, a pinch hitter. Uh, But uh, I worked for years in television. I've done about uh, 110, 120 television programs in the Middle East principally. There was a guy like myself in a previous generation, Zola Levitt, who died, and he went over there, uh, a lot of TV, and took people actually to the Bible lands. And uh, I've been all over Israel and uh, Turkey and Greece and Italy, just kind of walking in the footsteps, taking people to these archaeological sites. And uh, we did a series called Sar Shalom, which means Prince of Peace in Hebrew. And we built a village on a beach right by the Sea of Galilee. It was on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we would uh, hire uh, actors, Israeli actors, and do dramatic vignettes in conjunction with the teaching. I want to look at regeneration this morning. I want to look at a picnic by a beach. But what I want you to do with me at the start is to take leave of this day and this place. I want to show you one minute. It's a trailer. It's an introduction to what was an eight-part television series called Sar Shalom. And I want you to see the beach. I want you to see Israel and see Jesus. And then we're going to come here and I'm going to ask you to open up the Johannine Gospel with me, John chapter 6. But here we go. One minute. Sar Shalom, Prince of Peace. and so many ways is my guide 
and I asked her this morning, I said, do you think I should show a video? You know, I don't want to get all, you know, God, he's into TV. It's already weird enough as it is. Wait, he's a cop, he's a professor, he's a Christian, he's a Jew. I'm already going to confuse him anyway. And, you know, is it, is it too showy to, uh, to, to, to show a, a TV clip and talk about television? And she said, man, you know, Jeff, don't just, it's all good. Brian does it anyways to do his series. So there you go. Are you all with me now? We're by the beach. Yeah. I want you to open up your Bibles, please, to John chapter 6. And I'll tell you something about my communication style, then we'll get into it. I'm much more inductive than deductive. If you're a deductive preacher, you know, here's my title, here's my introduction, here's my three points, and you walk through it. Everybody knows what you're doing before you start, or right when you start. That's not the way literature works. Literature, whether you're reading a book or you're, uh, you're, you're seeing a movie, you, you don't know how it's going to play out. I don't tell people where I'm going. I just kind of get into the story, and uh, I don't map it out for you. But what I want to do is, is, is kind of wade into the waters with you. I'll give you some professorial blather as we start in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. I'll just work through the text. But then there's one thing that I'm going to alight upon that I think is principally important for life. It's not a three-point sermon. It's just a one. And I will just land on that thing, and then I'll develop it. But if you will, please begin with me in John chapter 6, verse 1. And I'm working from uh, the Tree of Life version of the Bible. But, you know, I'm glad that you're into any version of the Bible to tell the God's honest truth. We're told afterward... Yeshua, or Jesus, went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. So it's a beach gig. We're on the sea here. Yeshua, Jesus, went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, known as the Sea of Tiberias. Now, by the way, parenthetically, this lets you know that if you look at the Johannine Gospel, It's not written to a Jewish crowd, unlike the Matean gospel, the gospel of Matthew. The Matean text comes with a Semitic vorlage, with a a, a Hebrew or Aramaic original. It starts off, Sefer Toldot HaYeshua Mashiach Ben David Ben Avraham, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's, It's a Semitic document. The reason why we know that is if you look at the way he begins, he says, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Tiberias was the Latin name for it. It's what the Romans called it. Uh, John doesn't assume that his readers understand or would know what the Sea of Galilee was. That is the Galil, which is the Hebrew term for it. It's also known as Gennariset from the Hebrew kinor, which means harp because it, uh, it's shaped like a harp. And sometimes when the wind would sweep over the waters, you get these harp-like sounds. And there by the Sea of Galilee up in northern Israel, that's where Jesus did so much of what Jesus did. There was one uh, village there by the sea called Nahum, Capernaum, where he did more of his miracles there than anywhere else. It was the headquarters And a lot of what Jesus did, he did in and around Capernaum, Capernaum. You can go to the western part of the Sea of Galilee. There's Tiberias, the city. But what happens, Jesus leaves all that now. We're told he went to the sea, uh, to the other side of the sea. We're told in verse 2, 
a large crowd kept following him because they were watching the signs he was performing on the sick. Jesus uh, was an itinerant miracle worker. He wasn't just some philosopher who spent a little bit of time in Harvard and has a doctorate from Southern Methodist University. He, you know, he, he, he was out there, and, and people are hurting. Now, my boys, every time they get a text message or an email, this is a little hyperbolic, a little overstated, you know, they'll get a text, guess who's breaking up? Guess who's making up? Guess who's pregnant, hopefully married first? When I get texts and emails about people at 61 and a half, 62 in November, guess who's sick? Guess who's dying? Guess who's dead? You know, I'll wake up in the morning and sniff. I'm wondering if there's any rigor mortis that's beginning to set in someplace. I mean, you, you get to a, an, an age in life where people are the more so confronted with the finitude of our own existence. You know, when, when, when you buy a, a carton of milk, there's an expiration date on the carton of milk. It's published. We have an expiration date too, but it's not published. We don't know what it is. We don't know when it is necessarily. Uh, but the truth of the matter is you get to a certain age in life where you either were sick, are sick, or minimally know someone who's sick. That's just part of midlife and beyond. When we're younger, we have these boundless enthusiasms and energies that emanate from our bodies, but what happens is there is this, I call it this ubiquitous decay curve through time and circumstance, we weaken. And I mention that because we have the benefit of modern science to help us. These are the poor. And there's Jesus out and about, and his Talmudim, his disciples, they're praying for people, and people are experiencing regeneration. And what happens is word spreads. A large, a large crowd followed him because they were watching the signs that he was performing on the sick. So everyone is sick, was sick, knows someone who's sick. They don't have any help. And then along comes Jesus. And people get some sense there's something unique about Jesus. There, there's something special about the person of Jesus. There's just something that happens uh, when people come in contact with Jesus. Then in verse 3, Yeshua or Jesus went up the mountainside and sat down there with his disciples. And then he tells us, uh, and this is another evidence that that he's not writing to Jews. In verse 4, he says, Passover, the Jewish feast was at hand. If you're writing to Jews, you just need to say Passover is at hand. Everybody knows what it is. But, you know, Passover, the Jewish feast is at hand. Or the Sea of Galilee, you know, the Sea of Tiberias. He's writing to others. And if you look in verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd coming to him, Yeshua, or Jesus, said to Philip, where will we buy bread so these may eat? Let me camp here for a second. I had mentioned on the front end, I believe, no, I, maybe I didn't, uh, 
If you look at the story that I want to look at today, it's the only story in the New Testament that every gospel writer talks about it. You have the synoptics, Mark, Matthew, and Luke. I mention them in that order because Mark wrote first. I subscribe to what's called the Mark and Priority Hypothesis. Mark wrote first, and arguably Matthew and Luke have a copy of Mark in the writing. The similarities are ubiquitous. That's why you can read Matthew. Okay, I just read that. And then you read Mark and you go, wait a minute, I just, I just read that before. <laughs> and then you read Luke, <laughs> same thing. By way of contradistinction, when you look at the Johannine Gospel, when you look there, 95% of the material is unique. It's not, found, it's not found in the synoptics. The word synoptics, syn as a prefix, S-Y-N, means gather together. Optic means to see. Synoptic, it, it, it's gathered together. The vision, it's, 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 a, it's a comparable kind of vision. Uh, if you look at this story that I want to kind of wade into here, this beach picnic story, as you'll see, it is the one story that is adjudged to, to be so important that every uh, gospel writer tells this story. And they, they give a little different information, whether you're looking at it in Mark 6, in Matthew 14, or Luke 9, it's all there. We're told that Passover was at hand, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw a large crowd coming, and he said to Philip, Philip, where will we buy food so these may eat? Now, the reason why he spoke to Philip and he asked him is if you look in Luke chapter 9, verse 10, you don't need to, in the Lucan telling of the story, in the Johannine telling of it, we're informed that Jesus went to the other side of the sea. He went to a more desolate place. In the Lucan telling, Luke tells us the place exactly, that it was Bethsaida. Bet, Bethsaida in Hebrew, house of hunting. It's a fishing village. Small, wasn't as big as Capernaum, Capernaum. Bethsaida, perhaps you've heard of it before. Philip was from Bethsaida. Jesus has left where he normally frequents. He goes to a more desolate place. He takes pains to get there. But there's so much momentum, there's so much enthusiasm that people, they endure the difficulties just because they just want to be around this. They, they, they want to check this out. They, they want to see what's going on. These are sick people too. They either were sick themselves or were fascinated by the fact that Jesus does cool stuff to help sick people. And so people, they, they're just, let me, let me check this out. They, that's what I'm talking about. Let me, let, let me check this thing out. What is this? Who is this? If you look at the synoptics, they give us more information, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you look in John 6, verse 1, it says afterward. It doesn't tell us after what. It just says afterward. If you look at the synoptics, we're told that this story comes on the heels of Jesus has dispatched his disciples to go out and pray for people and bless people, and, and there were breakthroughs and miracles. They, they were on a learning journey, and they had just come back. So that's good news. There's bad news as well that uh, Yohanan, John, Hamatbil, the Baptist. You know, I mean, I'll baptize people. I, I, 
I love to see the baptisms here. In Hebrew, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist. You know, that, uh, if, if, if you look at John, he was just beheaded. Uh, so what happens is a lot of enthusiasm amongst the rank and file because not only was Jesus healing people and helping people out, but his disciples were starting to pray for people too. And there's some results. Uh, but there's political intrigue too that uh, you know, John literally lost his head. So Jesus, let, let, let's split. Let's get out of here. So Jesus withdraws. But there's so much popularity amongst the rank and file that people follow. So Jesus sees the crowd and he says to Philip, who was from Bethsaida, and because he was from there, the reason why we know he's from there, because in John chapter 1, verse 44, John tells us he was from there. So maybe because he knew the area that when Jesus said, looks at him and says, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? Well, maybe the, maybe the assumption is, well, Philip is from around here. Maybe he'd know where Kmart is or, you know, what stores are open. Or maybe he'd know where the, res where the resources are because this is where he's from. If you look at all of the disciples except one, they were all from the Galilee, but that's a region. There was one who was not from the Galilee. Galilee. His name was Judas. Judas Iscariot. Iscariot is not a last name. His, his, his birth certificate didn't say Iscariot, comma, J for Judas. Ish is Hebrew for man. Kariot is a village. Judas Iscariot. Judas, the man from Kariot, that's a, that is a village just a few miles away from Jerusalem, from Jerusalem, from the south that you know, all the disciples except for Judas were uh, farmers and fishermen from the north, but it's this guy, Philip. Uh, while others are from different towns and villages in the north of Israel, in the Galil, in the Galilee, Philip uh, was from Bethsaida. We're in Bethsaida right now, and there they are. Jesus sees thousands coming. It's, you know, they're, they're mobbing him like a rock star. And, and, and Jesus looks at Philip and he says, you know, you know uh, where are we going to get bread to feed these people? Now, I don't know about you, but I get, the, I get the impression personally, if Jesus asks a question, it's not like he doesn't know the answer. Jesus is like, yo, baby, I'm overwhelmed, these people. Man, what, what, uh, I'm, just, I'm just perplexed, baby. You know, I, I, I get the impression if he's asking a question, he's, it's not that he himself is overwhelmed, but there's a point to it. And by the way, if you look at didactic methodology, the way that people teach, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a staple in what's called the Socratic method. You ask questions. Socrates believed that the questions are more important than the answers. If you keep asking the question, if you keep asking the question, you eventually get to an answer. Everything is in the question because it makes you think forward. Well, here, Jesus says, where are we going to buy bread that all these people can eat? Now, Yeshua or Jesus was saying this to test him, for he knew what he was about to do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii isn't enough to buy bread for each to get a little bit. Now, by the way, a denarii was uh, the normal payment for a day laborer. So if you're looking at 200 denarii, uh, you're looking at eight months worth of wage. 
Now, when Jesus looks at his disciples and says, where are we gonna do this? When, when this guy says, look, uh, uh, you know, to, to, we, we don't have the money for it. By the way, that's a corrective to, in modernity where people say, well, if you're just following Jesus Christ, you're gonna be rich and blessed and blah, blah, blah. Look, if you look at his, his troop, they didn't have 200 denarii between them all. Right. So it, 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 gets ahead of the, it, it gets ahead of the evidence that uh, to assume, well, you know, if you're walking with Jesus, you're all gonna be rich. I should mention as well, and I did, though I didn't develop it, uh, this story in the Johannine Gospel comes right after, if you're familiar with the Gospels, Jesus sends his disciples out to minister in pairs. And he says, when you go, you know, enter into a home, and if, if, there's, if their peace is with you, then stay there, but if they take their peace away, then shake the dust off your feet. Do you remember that one? In conjunction with him saying that over and again, he said, listen, don't take any money with you. He says, don't take it, don't hoard money, just go, and the money will show up. The money will show up. Remember one time the tax man's knocking on the door and they say, is, is, is the rabbi gonna pay the tax? They didn't have the money for it. Jesus said, go fishing. They went fishing and they caught a fish It had a coin in the mouth of the fish and they used that to pay the tax. These people weren't carrying a lot of money, but there's a sense in which uh, this Jesus makes stuff happen to, to emerge, whether it's material resource, whether it's healing, there's some kind of potential by virtue of association with him. Amen. In any case here, um, Jesus raises the question rhetorically, you know. He says, how are we going uh, to get bread that all these people can eat? And Philip said, you know, he got out the calculator and he's, you know, look, thousands of people. and Boss, we can't do it. Now we're going to get to really where I wanted to land. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and by the way, Simon Peter, Andrew, and Philip, they were all from Bethsaida. Sometimes the gospel sweat, you know, it, it spreads down relational networks through pre-existing associations, people that grow up around each other, the same family. Um, the, this, these are the three from Bethsaida. One of the disciples chimes in here, Andrew, who happened to be Simon Peter's brother, and he said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What's that among so many? I want to camp on that for a second. There's 5,000 men, it says in one version. If you extrapolate from that, the women and children and what have you, you're looking at a crowd in the vicinity of 10,000 people. And when, 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 when you conflate the synoptics, when you, when you look at the other accounts, we're getting late in the day. And, and uh, uh, Jesus looks at his inner circle and says, we, we gotta feed all these people. One guy gets out the calculator, can't do it. We don't have the money. We don't have the resource. Now, I can 
imagine what happened here. This conversation is going on. There's some kid. He wasn't even a rich kid. The reason why you know that, where it's obfuscated some in the English, it's a little more clear in the Greek, when he says he had uh, these barley loaves and fish, explicitly, five barley loaves and two fish. If you look at food staples, barley is a lesser grade staple of bread than wheat. And it's not just two fish, it's small fish. Now, if you look at the Galilee, there's over 100 varieties of fish in the Galilee. This is the smallest of the small. The point is, when this kid left that day, when his mother packed him a lunch, he, he didn't have a lot. They don't have a lot. Do you understand that? We're not coming from means here. There's, I mean, it's, it's tacit. It's not explicit, that is, it's inferential. Here there's a story, Jesus, where are we gonna get the food to feed all these people? One guy gets out the calculator, how much is this gonna cost? We can't do it. And, but then there's some kid who goes, in answer to the question, how are we gonna feed all these people? There's some kid who just nudges on some, hey, excuse me, mister, what do you want, kid? Here's my lunch. It's not much. All, all the adults, this is impossible, 10,000 people, who's got the money? We don't lose. Get out the calculator. Hey, boss, it's too late. We can't do it. But then, I mean, I get all that. I probably would have reasoned like an adult. I, I would have been in that crowd. Jesus Christ, that's impossible. I'm not cussing. I really mean Jesus Christ. It's impossible. You, you, you can't do it. It's late in the day. We don't have that kind of resource, boss. You ought to know that. But there's some kid. I mean, that, that, that kind of stuff's not in his head. He just has some lunch that his mother packed him. And he just said, here, take it. <laughs> Yeshua, Jesus, said, make the people recline. There was much grass in the area, so the men reclined, about 5,000 in number, men. Uh, again, you can extrapolate from that. It's like the book of Numbers, uh, an Old Testament book. It's called Numbers because it begins with a numbering, but in, in, uh, uh, in Hebrew it's called Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. It talks about the wilderness trek. And it's called Numbered because it numbers the soldiers, 600,000 plus soldiers in the army, the Israelite army that left Egypt. But if you, if you figure this is your soldiers, and if you figure women and children, the elderly, looking at a group of some two million people, if you take the, the, the numbers literally. Uh, well, anyways, here, make the people recline. There was much grass in the place, so the men reclined, about 5,000 in number. Then Yeshua picked up the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed bread to everyone who was reclining. He did the same with the fists, as much as they wanted. Now, there's a standard prayer, uh, you know, in, in, in Hebrew. Uh, people will say, you know, before dinner, will you bless the food? Jews don't bless the food for, for a meal. Grace, the reason why is because the food itself is a blessing. Yes. That, uh, the fact that we have it there. 
Uh, Jews will thank God for the food, but we don't, the, the, the language of blessing the food. Uh, there is a blessing that goes along with the food in Hebrew. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Um, we're thanking uh, God for bringing this food staple forth. Jesus says the standard garden variety prayer, but then something amazing happens in conjunction with that. That uh, it says he distributed the bread to everyone, and as he's distributing, it keeps reproducing. There's more, and there's more, and there's more, and there's more. This was shocking. These people were told were attracted to Jesus because they heard that somehow, by virtue of association with Jesus, life can be better. You know, that they wanted some biblical medicine for life's assorted hurts, you know, that, 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 that somehow, that, that by virtue of association with him, there's some help. And so they knew of some sick people that were jacked up and others, but but they've never seen anything like this. This is one of those signs. Uh, Later on in the Joanine Gospel, in the 10th chapter, I believe it's chapter 10, verses 36 and 7, Jesus says, if I do not do the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. In other words, the works themselves, the transformation transformed lives, transformed circumstances. That's what he does. The word transform, the word trans is a Latin prefix. It means to cross over. It crosses over. That's why, you know, Barry and I will be leaving from Dallas and we're going to Durban, South Africa. It's a transatlantic Christ, uh, transatlantic flight. We, we cross from one port to the next. We cross the big pond. Trans means to cross over and, and uh, uh, transform. You, you know, you look at a butterfly which, by the way, used to be a symbol of... Christians used to use that as a Christian symbol. You know, why a butterfly? A butterfly is not just a, you know, a caterpillar that lost some weight and grew some wings. <laughs> that, uh, w- w- what happens is the, uh, the caterpillar spins a cocoon and goes in there, and it undergoes metamorphosis. Meta is the Latin word for change. Morphe is the word for form. Metamorphe, a change of form or transform. What happens is the the substance of the caterpillar dissolves into this jelly. And what emerges is this new and improved life form. What we would call transformation. Uh, There is some understanding. It's not just some religious deal. But somehow, by virtue of association with Jesus Christ, there's some kind of transformation. And and, and, uh, what happens is it's facilitated by some kid who didn't come from much, who didn't have much to offer, 
And he said, here, take this. Take this. And the world was transformed because of some little kid, some poor little kid with his worthless sack lunch. Every time any gospel narrative is read, someone in heaven wanted to make sure that readers tripped over that story. And here we are, it's a picnic at the beach. Okay, we're at the, you know, we've crossed the waters, we're there, it's a beachfront town by Bethsaida, we go up a little hill, it's a picnic at the beach. The greatest story ever told. And for my money, it has something to do with transformation. Now for people uh, who are looking for a little bit of transformation, for folk that are looking for a little bit of you know, heavenly help for life's earthly dilemmas, you know, that, you know, that, that, you know, is there something in this story that can relate to our stories? Because everyone here, everyone within the sound of my voice is making a journey from the womb to the tomb. Amen. We're somewhere along the line. We're all making a crossing. And we're all doing that. And is there anything in this story that we can get some utility out of, inquiring minds want to know? Is, I mean, you read the literature here, and you see there this transformative stuff at play. Yeah, you know, I get it. You can read about it here. It's obvious in here. It's obvious in here, you know, 30 people with the Baptist church, 30 people with Brian, boom, all of a sudden, you know, 230. Sky's the limit. I mean, I mean it's, it's obviously there's some kind of transformation that's in play here. I mean, it's obvious that there's some kind of transformation at play here, but for the moment, for rhetorical purposes, never mind here, never mind this house of God here. What about your house, 123 Main Street? Is there any way to get some of that transformation there? Is, is there any way to get it uh, where you can get some utility out of it? I mean, is there a way that you can get some utility out of religion, or do we religious professionals just get utility out of you with the offering plate and helping us put on our productions? Can I talk? You know, is, 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 is there a way to get some of this stuff at play, some of it work at work in the world where you live? Transformation. Not even in a religious sense. Because what we're looking at here isn't so much religious transformation. We're looking at circumstances that are transformed because of religion. That is, people that are hungry are fed because of Jesus, but it's material what's going on at play in them. 
Uh, the story here is there are people that are uh, physically jacked up by circumstances and bodies that aren't performing as they'd wish, and, and, and uh, their situation is ameliorated. It's improved because of religion, but what happens to them isn't decidedly religious. They were sick, and now they're better. You with me on that? Is there any way to get some, does, 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 is there a way to translate religion into our world, into our circumstances? Because that's what we're reading. Let me testify to that a little bit in close. I want to begin uh, by, by showing you a picture. And I asked this guy a question. Um, there's a church in Houston, uh, not far from uh, NASA, where a lot of the engineers went to. It's a big church now. It's a 10,000-seat auditorium. I've probably preached there 50 times. One year, I spoke more on Wednesday night there than the pastor did, who's a personal friend of mine. And you never know who's in the crowd. I get, I get a phone call. Uh, I was going to fly down one Wednesday. I, I get a phone call. And uh, I'm asking if I can come a little early or someone wants to talk to me. Uh, Rick Husbands. Rick was the commander of the space shuttle that blew up over Texas skies, by the way. He says, he and his wife want to come and see me because I've been ministering there. And, you know, I'm, you know, I give this Jewish gig in conjunction with the Jesus story. You know, I'm Jewish by both parents, raised, born Jewish, accepted Christ. My wife, Barry, both parents Jewish, raised in that world, accepted Christ. You know, so... Um, so, you know, I mean, if you're around me, I, I'm, I'm a Jesus guy and all that, but I got this other baggage that I kind of bring along with the storytelling. And, and uh, uh, Rick Husbands was going up in the space shuttle with an Israeli astronaut, Elion Ramon. And Ramon was one of the aces that, well, he, he's a legend in the Israeli Air Force. He was. His son, by the way, was a fighter pilot who died in a training accident. Um, so, you know, a few years ago. But uh, uh, Rick Husband wanted to see me, and he wanted to know, because he, he'd heard me preach many times. He was in the choir, you know, in the worship team, and uh, he knew that he was going to have this Israeli with him in the space shuttle, and he just wanted to know how he could be a sensitive witness. You know, he was thinking maybe this will be the best shot at, getting a positive impression of, of Jesus' people. And uh, because Rick Husband, that's him right here, and Mike Anderson, that's him right here, who was the payload specialist. They were prayer partners, strong, super active Christians. And they wanted to help this guy right here. This is Elion Ramon. You can see there's an American flag over here and an Israeli flag over there. So uh, what happened is I went there to meet with Rick Husband and his wife, Evelyn, and um, he went over and talked to me about every crew member and wanted to pray. He wanted to, me and us to pray for every member of the crew. And uh, then he, he wanted to conversate with me as I'd said a little bit about how to minister to Elion Ramon. So that's what he wanted. Um, and I, I gave him what he wanted, the best I knew to give it. But then I asked him, I says, Rick, can I ask you a question? Yeah, what do you want? I said, well, because I said, look, I know what someone has to go through to become a police officer and a firefighter. I used to be a volunteer firefighter out of the firehouse here when Donnie Pickard was the chief. 
I didn't have time to do everything. You know, I got to earn a living. I just can't turn the lights on and have fun, you know, first responding. It was actually Brad Vandenberg that got me into firefighting. But that's another story. But I wound up over there. Anyway, where was I? I don't even remember. Yeah, I know, how to, I know what you got to do to become a firefighter, you know. I know what you need to do to become a police officer. Uh, I know what you need to do to become a pastor. You know, I know what you need to do to become a professor. And, you know, I've done all that stuff. I haven't done it, but I kind of know what you need to do to become a doctor or a lawyer or something. But I wondered, I asked him, I says, what do you have to do to become an astronaut? Or I asked him, how does a guy become a commander of a space shuttle? I just wanted to know, because I don't know anybody that does that for a living. What do you do for a living? Why well, fly the space shuttle around? You know, I mean, I don't know. I never met anybody like that. So I asked him, how do you do that? And he proceeded to tell me the story. And I can't go into it in a lot of detail with you, because I got to really think about getting this shuttle on the ground. I got to get this baby landed. It's an old saying, I love a finished speaker. I really, truly do. I don't mean one who's polished. I just mean one who's through. <laughs> Enough already. Thank you, Jeffrey. You're a little confusing, but it's interesting. But you're not the only act in town. It's lunch. I got it. I got it. I got it. I understand. Um, I get it. Uh, what do you have to do to be a commander of a space shuttle? And he gave me this, and when he signed it, there's a verse. It's his life verse. It's the verse that transformed his circumstance. And I want you, and, and this isn't new to you. You might want to, by the way, if you go with me, please, to the book of Proverbs. I want to look at two verses on the quick here as I close. The first in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26, where the text says, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Here's some kid just here, you know, that uh, I think when we become givers, Scripture says that a liberal man will be enriched and he waters and will self be watered. When we become giving kind to people, and I don't mean just money, I don't even mean money. Here, the guy gave a lunch. These disciples didn't have money. They had to rely on mercy money coming their way from sympathizers. Uh, but when, when people are, are, are giving people, is that the paradox when Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it? Is that what it means when Jesus says, you gotta, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. If you want to live, you got to die. Uh, can, can, can it, is that what he means? When, when here, here just, just take. I remember one time I was talking to a guy, and he was just really frustrated. He just couldn't get a date to save his soul, and he could finally get one, and he could only get one. <laughs> Called back the second time, let's just be friends. That's what he kept hearing. I mean, I mean, the guy was reasonably successful. You know, he wasn't a cyclops. You know, he was reasonably handsome, you know, it's all good. I mean, and he's wondering, what's wrong? And, and I asked him if he would reconstruct 
Well, he goes out on the date, and, and you know, he wants to make a good impression because, you know, anybody on a first date knows you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So there he is trying to talk to her, telling her about this and that and him here and this and that. He's trying to make a good impression. I said, I know what your problem is. What's that? He says, well, first, you talk too much. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? I says, here, let me give you a little clue. You want to have success in life? Read my lips. Drop dead. I'm shocked by that. Drop dead. Go away. He's so busy trying to let her know what he's all about. I said, what would happen, by the way, if you would just drop dead and invest energy in trying to find out what she's all about? Who is she? What are her interests? Where is she looking to go in life? How she hoping to get there, uh, and uh, where there, there's a whole world beyond the borders of your own nose, and to begin to climb into other people's world, and invest in that, and express some interest in that. If you were to drop dead and put other people first and serve them, you might find, mister, the whole world will turn for you. Amen. If he would just do that, that old boy would need to spray himself down with girl repellent. <laughs> because girls would just be splat. Ah, you know, if it's someone like that. That, that, that. that if we develop an aptitude, we realize that life is about service. Yeah. It's about other people. In fact, the word ministry. In, in the Hebrew, the word service is, servant is ebed, servant, a slave. The word ministry comes from the Latin minus, which means less than. There is a word for majesty, you know, on high, the leader, the big kahuna, your majesty. But with Jesus, it's your ministry. It's the minister. Jesus said, he was greatest among you, must be the servant of all, other people first. And against, that's counterintuitive. But against that backdrop, very quickly, 23, verse 26, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. I want the worship team to come up and we're going to pray together. Give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Maybe, just maybe, there's transformed lives. Maybe there's transformation in circumstance in relations, in health, and finance. Maybe there's a world ahead of you. Give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. Rick Husband, every time he signed his name, I learned, he put a Bible verse underneath it. How, does, how, do, how do you do this? How do you command a space shuttle? His Life verse is Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, wherein the author says, the Lord says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, I want you to listen to me as I close, please. I believe that all of us should be concerned for the future. 
The reason why we should be concerned for the future is because we are all going to spend the rest of our lives in the future. And the quality of that future will have something to do with the decisions that we make in the present. Is there a certain way of being that really can pay dividends? Is there a way to live? Is there a way to love? Is there a way to learn? Is there a way to be? The guy that gave me this, who died overhead. And by the way, the word vertical comes from a Latin word meaning directly overhead. I thought it came from the Latin veritas, which means truth. Oh, it's, maybe it could be true north, directly overhead. But uh, from a guy who literally died overhead, he wanted you to know that his life was a dream come true. He went further in life than he ever thought he'd go he soared higher in life than he thought he'd ever soar. And he left the secret to his success when he signed his name. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. There's a little boy who acknowledged God and Jesus with his lunch. We all have different gifts. There's, there's, we all want to give our lives to the Lord. Do that. And I believe that you'll be blessed. Thank you so much for affording me the opportunity to come and share the word with you. And as I go, all I can say is slow down or I'll see you on the streets. God bless you. Thank you very much. Bye.